0: Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people, following Jesus every day. Amen. Uh, We will have a chance to sing more uh, at the end here today. And and again, we are taking communion together, so those of you online may want to get elements for that. If you are visiting with us this morning online or in person, uh, that is about as formal as we get as a church. Uh, to do a a ritual and a doxology, um, and it is entirely us that we would do the most formal thing we're going to do all year while surrounded by space rovers. (laughs) So there you go. Uh, When I was growing up, uh, I was not very much into uh, superheroes and comic books and those kind of things. I I had friends who Uh, who certainly were, and so I'm six, seven, eight years old going over somebody's house to play with Batman toys or whatever, but it was just not my thing. I got into sports instead. However, when I was in high school, there was one particular superhero that caught my attention and my imagination, and that is Larry Boy. Now, if you are not familiar with Larry Boy because you've been too busy living in the Marvel Universe, I I feel bad for you, but that's okay. That's all right, I will clue you in. Uh, Larry Boy was Larry the Cucumber dressed up in a super suit with plunger ears. Now, don't tell anybody that because we don't want to give away Larry Boy's secret identity. But it was VeggieTale, peak, peak VeggieTale uh, humor. Uh, Larry Boy would show up and say, I am that hero! Uh, and, uh, and then he would attempt to be the hero and Inspector Gadget-esque uh, it would not usually go very well. I mean, it would all go great in the end, but usually because somebody else did something good and he got to take the credit for it or whatever, but that's fine. Uh, particularly what I loved about Larry Boy is he had these plunger ears that I, I don't know what you expect somebody to do with plunger ears, uh, but he used them to, uh, to climb buildings. Now, why would he need plunger ears to climb buildings? Um, well, because he doesn't have any hands. No hands for poor Larry the Cucumber. So, plunger ears it is. Uh, and he would save the day uh, plunger ears and and all. Uh, now, uh, again, uh, not always the smoothest experience, but that was okay because if somebody shows up in a mask with plungers attached to their head, you don't have real high expectations for them anyway. Uh, and And the other veggies um, a, a little uh, uh, meanly in my opinion. Um, that they they didn't have very high expectations of the dude with the plungers on his ears. So the fact that anything good happened at all was excellent, because that is how expectations work, right? If you are also a sports fan, you know this very well, because two teams at the end of the season could have the exact same record, and their fan bases feel very differently about it. Because if one of those teams was supposed to be the champion, and they end up with a mediocre record, uh, then the fan base is disappointed, angry, fire everybody. If the team was supposed to be awful, and then they have a mediocre record, the fans are like, "Woohoo! we're Seattle fans, and this is great. Anyway, um, it works, though. It's good. It, expectations matter. What we expect to have happen determines our experience of what actually occurs. So some people then go through life deciding that they're just gonna keep their expectations really low. I just won't expect anything good to happen, and then if something good happens, well, it's just a bonus. And some of you are like, yep, here's the problem. When we do that, we miss out on all the joy of anticipating something good. Um, And I know for us pessimists that feels weird, that there would be joy in anticipating something good, but all the optimists in the room are going, yeah, that's the best part. Uh, There also are people who will go through life expecting that everything is going to go great. And then on the other end of their experiences, they are left picking up the pieces of reality uh, that didn't quite go the way they expected. Expectations matter. So an important question for us and our faith. What do you expect when you come to Jesus? Now, I didn't stick that in the notes, and I don't know why, so feel free to write at the top. What do you expect when you come to Jesus? Do you expect him to fix all your problems? Do you expect him to make your dreams come true? Maybe you're expecting a healing. Maybe you're expecting judgment. Maybe you're expecting nothing at all to happen. What do you expect when you come to Jesus? Because if expectations matter, then maybe our experience of Jesus has more to do with our expectations than our actual experience. As we spend time in scriptures, we have this summer witnessing the life of Jesus, we see people show up with all of these expectations and more. That he would be a healer, a political savior, a wise teacher, maybe an enemy or a troublemaker or a zealot. But the expectations for who Jesus would be actually started long before he was ever born, long before people knew that his name would be Jesus. People... Uh, specifically Jewish people, had been expecting for centuries that God was going to send a savior, a messiah, uh, one who would come and free them from whatever oppression they were facing or whatever difficulties they were facing at the time. At the time that uh, Jesus uh, hits the planet, uh, the, um, the, the conquering group at that time is the uh, Roman government. Uh, it's just sort of taken residence in the Jewish lands and said, this is ours now, and you will do what we tell you to do. And so they're looking forward to a Messiah coming to free them from this oppression. Again, this has been happening for centuries with all kinds of different conquering enemies. And so every time, uh, well, sorry, let me try that again. Anytime that there are expectations, particularly expectations for a person, there are people who will show up and say, I am that hero, right? Just like Larry boy. And, and so people would show up and they say, yep, yeah, that's me, I'm the Messiah. And they would start a movement and they would gain a following because people really wanted this to be true. And then their movement would die out either because they died out or uh, because of any of the other reasons we can think of why movements die out because uh, they, there was a controversy or whatever it may be, because they were not actually that hero. And then one day, this guy named John, a guy that we now call John the Baptist, came along and he started preaching out in the wilderness and he started baptizing people into this new movement and he started asking them to repent from their sins, to to turn away from the things they were doing that led them away from God and to turn to God and to be baptized into this new movement. And people said, oh, maybe he is that hero. And John said, I am not that hero, but that hero is coming. I don't know who he is, but I promise he's coming because God has told me he's coming. So now I'm telling you. And, and as John looked forward uh, to this coming Messiah, uh, he was in a role of being a, uh, a prophet. And, and so, again, God tells him things. He tells the people things. And so as he uh, looked forward to this coming Messiah, uh, he said this. These words are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, starting Uh, Chapter three, verse 10. We'll start in verse 10. Even now, this is John speaking to the people. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I am not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So, as John looks forward, John's expectations were a sharpened axe Fire baptism and burned chaff. Sharpened axe. This is what he thinks of when he's looking forward to the Savior. Sharpened axe. Baptism of fire and burned chaff. Now, I'm not sure if John thinks the burning chaff represents the sins of humanity or the sinners themselves, but these are the expectations. Again, this summer, we've been looking at these stories of Jesus told to us by Matthew in in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew trying to really look at the person of Jesus, to witness who Jesus really is, to simply read the story and like the people who were there at the time, say, okay, who is this guy based on what I am seeing in front of me right now? And in this story, we actually get our first glimpse of the adult Jesus because Matthew records these words of John and then immediately turns to the arrival of Jesus. Jesus arrives at John's baptism location asking to be baptized into the movement that John has been preaching about and that Jesus is about to initiate. And we read in other gospels that it is in this moment that John goes, oh, that guy is... This hero, this is the one that we've been waiting for. I didn't know that until now, even though they uh, are distant cousins and and, and had met each other before and whatever. I didn't know who it was going to be. God just told me that the Messiah was coming. And here he is. And so uh, the story continues in Matthew chapter 3. The very next verse is verse 13. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Before he fulfills any of the prophecies of the prophets of old, before he fulfills any of John's brand new prophecies, Jesus is first called a son. Before he accomplishes anything, His heavenly father declares, this is my son and I love him and I am greatly pleased with him. Take a small detour for just a second or a pause here to say that this is also true of you. That if you never accomplish, whatever accomplish means, if you never accomplish anything in this life that you feel like you were supposed to, if you don't have the achievements that you wanted or think you should have, your heavenly father invites you to be his child and to be loved, and he delights in you. He takes great joy in you, not because of what you've done, not because you've somehow earned it, not because you've done great things for God, but simply because he made you and he loves you as you are. And he knows all that he has for you so jesus comes up out of the water and he hears the approval of his father and from there he launches his ministry healing freeing gathering and he teaches about the kingdom of god which is so different from the kingdoms of this world and then he lives out that kingdom more gathering forgiving and healing Jesus' life and ministry at that point is sort of up and to the right. There's some bumps in it, but it, it? I guess your right is that way, right? Up and to the right. Things are going well. Things are growing uh, as much as you could possibly hope for. Meanwhile, John the Baptist's life takes a dark turn. Because John's call, John's ministry was not particularly pastoral in the sense that he, it wasn't about gathering people and leading them into some new vision uh, of uh, a new kind of kingdom like Jesus was doing. His ministry was very prophetic. And by that, mean, by that, I mean that he was taking what God told him and he was speaking it to the people. And specifically, if you trace prophecies through the Old Testament, you see that almost every time uh, the prophet is getting a word from God that he speaks not to the people, but to the religious leaders to say, hey, everybody, but especially y'all, you aren't listening to God and so now he is talking to me and I am telling you. This is what's going wrong, and this is what you need to know. John's ministry was very much in that same vein, talking to the people, inviting them to some new movement, but also uh, calling out the religious leaders or those who labeled themselves as religious leaders, saying, hey, you are being hypocritical. You are not following the ways of God, and it is bad for you, and it is bad for our people. And one of those leaders was more political than religious but because he claimed the title of being the Jewish uh, leader politically in that region. Uh, A guy named Herod. Uh, This is a different Herod than the one we read about in the Christmas story doing awful, awful things. This is his son who does his own uh, amazingly awful things. Um, And uh, he really wants to be a king he doesn't get to be one. That's a whole different story. Uh, he just is in charge of this little area of land. Well, John uh, is in this little area of land. And while this Herod is doing uh, some very unlawful and uh, unbiblical things, John is calling him out on it. And Herod gets tired of hearing it. And uh, because he has the power to, uh, to shut him up, he does. He takes John um, and he throws him in prison. And this is not the kind of like uh, bang the gavel, you're sentenced to two years and then you can be on parole or whatever. This is you are in prison And when the crazy guy who puts you here decides that you can get out or he wants to kill you, uh, then that'll be what happens next. So there's no end date in in mind. John is just there in prison. And from prison, he's hearing about these different things that are going on with Jesus's ministry. The growing crowds, the uh, growing awareness, the growing controversies. And from this doorstep of death, John is in need of some reassurance. He gave up his life in obedience to God, and he wants to know what a lot of us might want to know at the doorstep of death, is all the things that I did adding up to something? Does it mean anything? Did I, did I do what I was supposed to? Was it worth it? And in this case, Jesus, I want to know, was I right about you? I told people you were the Messiah. Are you really... And because John is uh, obviously stuck in prison, he sends his disciples, his followers, uh, to ask Jesus this really important question. And so we're going to fast forward to Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 2. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Now, I read this list, and maybe you do too, and think, yep, that's the Messiah that that's, that's who he needs to be. Those are all the things that's happening. Look at all the incredible stuff that's going on healings and resurrection and good news. So I'll pause us here to remind ourselves what John was expecting from the Messiah. John was expecting fire and axes and burning. Those are two very different lists because Jesus's response is that people are healed and the dead are raised. John was expecting a Messiah of axes and burning and fire. And Jesus said, oh no, no, look around. People are healed and the dead are raised. Now, to be clear, John was not wrong about what he was predicting. Jesus did take away the sin of the world. And there will be a day of judgment, of separation and burning and all those things. And he did baptize people with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And you can read that story in Acts chapter two, and we celebrate it every year at Pentecost. And if we were to keep reading uh, in Matthew 11, Jesus actually turns to the crowd and starts talking about all the good that John has done And, and confirming and affirming John's role as a prophet. But what he sends John's disciples back to John with is a very different list than what John was expecting. And this is speculation on my part, so I want to be clear about that, but I wonder if this was a very different list than what John felt like he needed in the moment because if what you are expecting is a Messiah who is going to come, take away the power of Rome and burn away the hypocrisy of the leaders and uh, freeing captives and all of those kinds of things, if if you're going to do all of that, hey, Jesus, there's this guy, this leader, I need you to remove now (laughs) because he's got me holed up here and I don't know how I'm going to get out So this is what your ministry is going to be. Like I told people it was, I could really use that right about yesterday. John had read the prophets of old and he echoed their prophecies when he predicted axes, fire, and burning chaff. And Jesus doesn't deny that those things are coming, but he points John to one very specific prophet that they were both very familiar with, and that is the prophet Isaiah. And in lots of different places, in Matthew, both Matthew and Jesus point us back toward Isaiah. So, check this out. This is from Isaiah. Uh, this is uh, from Isaiah 35, uh, starting in verse 4. And these words should sound familiar because Jesus just told them to John or something like them. So, these are the kinds of things that Jesus is trying to get John to recall. Okay. Say to those with fearful hearts. Like, you know, John. Be strong and do not fear. For your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And John would go, yes and amen. Like, Let's let that happen right now. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. Deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness. Streams, will water the wasteland, the blind see, the lame walk, new life springs up. And then a little later, Isaiah 42, this is verse seven. Speaking of the Messiah to come, you will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. Well, know that, that's exactly what John is hoping for, right? For whatever reason, that is not Jesus' promise to John and that is not God's plan for John. Uh, If you want to read the story, it's in Matthew chapter 14, but eventually John is pulled out of prison and beheaded for Herod's entertainment at the request of his wife. Jesus wasn't pointing John toward a promise to free him. He wasn't arguing that John was wrong He's simply saying, hey, John, there is more going on here than what you're seeing. That what you expected is just a piece of what is happening here. Jesus was pointing John to the promises of Isaiah, essentially declaring, again, as he does elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, that that he is a savior in the mold of Isaiah, the Messiah that Isaiah Predicted. And that means all of the things that we just read. But it seems to me and to other people smarter than me that Jesus is trying to get John to see these things of evident, as evidence of what is still to come. Further on in Isaiah, we have more prediction of who this Messiah is going to be and what they will go through. This is in Isaiah chapter 53. And I'll start in verse four. Again, these words of Isaiah about the Messiah to come. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Jesus would become this kind of savior, broken for our sin, giving up his life to break the curse of death that sin brought upon the world. Essentially, Jesus is telling John, look, I know what you expect but these things are part of my mission too. I know what you expect, and and I will do it, but not in the way that you expect. Sin will be dealt with, and the kingdoms of this world will be rendered powerless, but not in the way you expect. Sin will be separated and burned, its power broken. But John... Let me give you a hint about how it's going to happen. Go back to Isaiah. Read the verses again. Keep reading. Make sure you get to 53. They didn't have chapter numbers yet. Yes, life is coming, but death will come first. Now, in fairness to John, He is not the only one whose expectations led him to assume a different ministry than what Jesus was actually here to do. Peter was one of Jesus's closest friends and followers, uh, and he didn't get it either. He sort of got it. (laughs) Let's go back to Matthew and uh, chapter 16. By this point in the story, John has been beheaded and he's dead. Jesus' ministry has picked up more followers and lost more followers and picked up more controversy and a lot more attention and uh, more threats on his life and all of those things. More and more people have heard about him or talking about him. And so he brings this question to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, starting in uh, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, the Son of Man being his title for himself, but also a known title for the Messiah. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You do not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. What a great declaration of faith by Peter, right? Like, like he gets it. You are the son of the living God. And, and he's willing to say so and to say it out loud. Jesus, you really are the son of God. You really are the one that we have been waiting for. You are that hero. And one day, Peter will become the leader of Jesus's movement, the leader that, of the movement we call Jesus. The church. But now we're going to fast forward again. A whole two verses. Now in fairness to Peter, it's clear that some time passes here, but it's only two verses in Matthew's account. So we're going to skip to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God. Jesus tries to explain what's going to happen. And Peter's expectations just can't handle it. Peter's expectations determine his perspective. Peter's expectations determine his perspective. You're seeing this from human perspective, not from God's. Of course, his expectations determine his perspective. So do yours. So do mine. Our expectations determine our perspective. And that's what Peter runs into here. Peter expects Jesus to be a holy king, to overthrow the evil rulers of this world, especially Rome. And Peter knows that things have been up and to the right, and he expects Jesus to continue his trajectory of healing and victory. He's like, no, 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 none of that awful stuff you're talking about is going to happen to you because everything is going great and it's going to continue to go the way that it's going. Peter expects Jesus to continue his trajectory of healing and victory, and Jesus rebukes Peter because he knows the kind of savior he is supposed to be. He knows Peter's perspective, but he also knows God's perspective. And so he tells Peter and his fellow disciples and therefore also us in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus expects victory is going to come through the cross. Jesus expects victory to come through the cross. Both his victory over the world and his followers' victory in it, which now being in a space like this that has crosses up on the wall and people wearing them around their necks may feel like the most obvious thing. But what Jesus is talking about to these disciples is the Roman torture capital punishment device where they would brutalize you before hanging you out in public to watch you suffocate on your own blood. Where they would shame you as much as possible as they killed you as painfully as possible. And Jesus says, through the cross is going to come victory. It is not what the disciples expected. It's definitely not what the crowds expected. They had victory in mind, sure, but not that way. As we keep moving through Matthew's account, we read about disciples who uh, go up to Jesus and say, hey, when you come into your power, your glory, when it's all good, can we sit in the places of power and glory next to you? We don't need to take your seat, but like right next to you would be really nice. Jesus said, you have no idea what you are asking for. We read about crowds who worshiped and praised him as he uh, entered in with his entourage into the capital city because they were just sure that that hero was here and that he was here to meet all of their expectations for freedom and power. And then we read about those crowds turning on him when he didn't meet their expectations and certainly didn't meet them fast enough which is easy to condemn them for. But I'm probably not the only one in this room who has turned their back on God because God did not, or gotten angry at God because God did not meet my expectations as quickly as I wanted him to. The religious leaders stir up the people in a frenzy of anger and hate. One of the disciples betrays Jesus and Jesus is arrested and condemned. He's put on a mock trial and essentially convicted of causing a disturbance that their expectations could not keep up with. And his punishment for that disturbing of the peace would be death on the cross. So I actually just want to step aside and read the story. Uh, it is going to be on the screen. Uh, it is A huge chunk of Matthew chapter 27, so you may want to grab a Bible uh, and follow along. And I want to just read it and let us see for ourselves the way that Jesus is becoming in this moment the Messiah that Isaiah predicted being pierced for our sins, our wrongs laid on the one who had done no wrong. This is a demonstration of the lengths that God's love would go for you, did go for you before you ever took a breath, let alone accomplished anything. So this is Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head, and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they had nailed him to the cross... The soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus's head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him for he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Aloy, alloy, alloy lema svachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly was the son of God. John had said Jesus was the son of God, but then he struggled to believe it when it didn't look like what he expected. Peter said that Jesus was the son of God and then refused to believe that it would look like this. The Roman soldiers, the enemies of the Jewish people, saw what actually happened and said, oh, oh, surely this is the Son of God. Jesus had called on us, his church, to believe that he is the Son of God and to remember how he proved it. That he is the Son of God and he proved it on the cross. That he is the love of God and he demonstrated it on the cross. The night before he died, he got together uh, for dinner with his disciples, including with the one who would later that night betray him to have him arrested and killed. And he gathered these friends together and he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it around. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the wine and he passed it around. And he said, this is my blood spilled for you, for all of you. He said, every time you eat of this, every time you drink of this, remember me. So today, we're going to remember. We are uh, going to take a cracker as the bread and grape juice as the wine, and we're going to remember together. We're going to ask you, uh, as we sing this first song together, to uh, head toward the back, um, if you would like to, and uh, take a cup and a cracker and hold on to it, bring it back to your seat. We will all uh, take together in a few minutes. Uh, you don't have to be a member of East Hills to take communion. We just ask that it means something to you, that this uh, love that was demonstrated on the cross is received by you as the love of God for you and for all of us. And if you do not want to take communion for any reason, there is no judgment or shame on that whatsoever. Feel free to hang tight where you are, and that's, that's totally fine. So as the worship team comes up, uh, let me invite God into this moment with us. Father God, we know that we are in need of your love and that you have given it, that you do give it, that we can receive it now, that you demonstrated that love by giving up your life for us, that you took away the weight and the consequences of our sins, of the sins of this entire world, through Jesus' death on the cross. And so we come to remember, as you have called us to do, to remember your love, to remember that whatever sins we're walking in here with are not too big for you to forgive, and, and do not pull us away from your love. Jesus, thank you for being the hero that we need, that the world needs. And today we remember and we proclaim your goodness, and your love. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The tables are open when you're ready. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.